My life is really um, complex. There are things about me that you wouldn't understand. Welcome to Now Playing's Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics Movie Series. Ah, uh, gives a feller a good feeling to know they're up there doing their job. With our all-star hosts, Jacob the Dark Knight. You and your friends better batten down the hatches. Stuart the Boy Reviewer. I didn't see just kill me. Your punishment must be more severe. And the Clown Prince of Podcasting, Arnie. I'm Gotham's Reckoning. Each week at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we'll be watching another Batman film, ending with a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. Have you ever danced with a spoiler in the pale moonlight? This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. What are you supposed to know like this does to a kid? Listener discretion is advised. Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. <sighs> monkey work. And here we go. Today, we're discussing <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises, starring Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Gary Oldman, Anne Hathaway, Tom Hardy, and Morgan Freeman, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Arnie, the necessary evil of now playing. <laughs> you remind me of the animated stork that used to sell me pickles. You remember that guy? <laughs> it's Stuart in L.A. Stuart, but now playing is in ashes. You have my permission to stop watching superhero movies. <laughs> this is Jacob. I know. It's true. It's true. I'm free, and I can't believe it. Except next week. <laughs> and when Man of Steel comes out, which we saw the trailer for before Dark Knight. Hey, I'm, I'm not opposed to seeing a superhero movie again, but come on, guys. We've been at this for way over a year, heavy, like most every week, with very few exceptions. Most every series we've covered has been a superhero, and I do feel like we've saved the one that I cared about the best for last, but yeah, I can't say that I'm not looking forward to doing other things, getting back to horror, getting to see Bond, seeing some other stuff. This is great for me. Well, this is the one I wanted to get to. This is the one I've been anticipating all year, ever since it was announced. I'm excited. 
Absolutely. And yeah, Dark Knight Rises, easily the most anticipated superhero movie for me. Not the most anticipated movie of this year. That was Prometheus. But if we were talking superheroes, I was way more hyped for this than I ever was for Avengers. I was right back where I was when The Dark Knight came out. Even though I loved, loved, loved The Dark Knight, the closer we got to The Dark Knight Rises, the more apathetic I felt. And if it wasn't for now playing, I wouldn't have seen it this weekend. The trailers didn't give me anything to hook me other than, hey, you liked The Last Batman, there's another one. That's what the trailers preyed upon. The last movie made so much damn money, they didn't feel they needed to tease much. I knew Bane was in it. That's all they really said. They didn't really go into plot details or anything that would excite me about this movie. We all know how I felt about Batman Begins. And to be honest, for the first time this summer... The rabid fanboy base really got on my nerves. Maybe it was the Batlash I got after Batman Begins, but I just did not want to go see this movie this weekend. I would have seen it, no matter, now playing or not. I would not have seen it opening weekend. But I ended up seeing it twice opening day because of now playing, so there you go. Indeed, I did the same thing. I saw a midnight show on Thursday and then saw it again in IMAX. I couldn't even get an IMAX ticket until several screenings in, but finally got one last night. So I have seen the movie twice. And thank God, right? There's a lot here. Yeah, I also saw it twice, both in IMAX. I went first showing Friday morning, and then my wife, who was out of town, was flying back that day. She did not want to wait. She basically came from the airport, went straight to the theater to go see this movie, and I joined her again to see it. Now, I do want to say, unfortunately, some of the hype and anticipation and fun of seeing this movie this weekend has been clouded due to the personal tragedy that hangs over the screening in Colorado. I do want to say my first reaction to this movie, I saw it before I knew about that. So I feel like I have a very privileged stance here in that the first time I saw this, it was not on my mind. There was nothing about a mass killing at all in the news, and I saw it without that baggage. Uh, Did you guys know about the shooting before you saw the film the first time? Yeah, I knew about it when I saw it both times. I don't think it really affected people coming to see Batman. That's why they were there. Both screenings I saw were sold out. I do want to express my thoughts and sympathies for everyone in Colorado. Now playing editor Alex, his fiance had a friend who was killed at that screening. So it has hit the now playing family very close to home. And I have made a donation to the Red Cross who is helping support these families in this time of crisis. Our deepest sympathies go out to them. I did, of course, know about that because I didn't go to a midnight screening of this, but Only a couple of times did I think about it during the movie. I thought about it a lot when not in the movie because it's such a tragedy. But other than that, it didn't cloud my viewing of this film. And we've only dedicated one podcast in the past, but we will do this podcast in dedication and memory of those in Colorado. Well, without further ado, Arnie, then let's get into the plot. It's been eight years since Batman took the blame for Harvey Dent's murder at the end of The Dark Knight, and Gotham is now almost entirely crime-free thanks to the draconian Harvey Dent Act that's gotten a thousand criminals off the streets of Gotham City with no chance for parole. And in that eight years, Batman has not emerged once, nor has Bruce Wayne, who's become a recluse, not able to envision a life for himself without girlfriend Rachel Dawes. More, he's lost most of his fortune investing in a clean energy-producing fusion reactor, which he mothballs when he reads a paper on how fusion reactors can be turned into nuclear bombs. But Wayne Enterprises' bad fortunes has business competitor John Daggett sensing blood in the water, and he wants to absorb Wayne Enterprises into his own operations. 
To accomplish this, he hires the mercenary Bane, who's done other jobs for Daggett in the past, to forge Wayne's fingerprints on bad stock deals, leaving Wayne destitute. Bane's Gotham City crimes bring Batman out of retirement, but the police choose to chase Dent's supposed killer rather than Bane, and Daggett succeeds in ruining Bruce. To keep the fusion reactor out of Daggett's hands, Wayne Enterprises president Lucius Fox and Bruce turn to Miranda Tate, who invested heavily in the clean energy project. Feeling the fusion reactor would be safe with Tate, Wayne's last act is ensuring Tate, not Daggett, takes control of Wayne Enterprises. But Bane's plans run deeper. Finished with Daggett, Bane kills the man, then uses burglar Selina Kyle, a cat burglar who had run-ins with both Batman and Bruce Wayne, to lure Batman into the sewers, where Bane beats Batman, dislocating his spine. He then takes Wayne to a prison, the prison in which Bane himself was born, where Wayne can watch as Bane, an exiled member of the League of Shadows, finishes the work started by Ra's al Ghul and destroys Gotham. Bane uses explosives planted throughout the city to cut it off from the outside world and trap the entire police force underground, creating anarchy and revealing to the public the truth about Harvey Dent. He has a scientist, who he kidnapped in the first act of the film, turn Wayne's fusion reactor into a nuclear bomb that will slowly decay and in five months explode. Wayne watches, helpless from prison, where the prison doctors mend his body and tell him of the boy born in the prison, the son of mercenary Ra's al Ghul, the boy being the only one to escape the prison. The stories inspire Bruce, and he trains, finally embracing his fear and making the climb without a rope, escaping and returning to Gotham one day before the bomb goes off. He reteams with Jim Gordon, who was shot by Bane earlier, and Gordon's new detective, John Blake, in fighting against Bane's forces to retake the city and save them from the bomb. Batman does defeat Bane in combat, but is surprised when he's stabbed by Miranda Tate. It turns out her real name is Talia al Ghul, and it was she, not Bane, born in the prison and the one to escape. In the prison, Bane was her protector, and he has been her loyal servant ever since, and she wants to finish what her father started and take revenge on the man who murdered her father. A big fight ensues, and Talia is killed as Batman straps the nuke with just minutes to go to his flying ship called Just the Bat, and it flies out over the water, saving the city but seemingly sacrificing Batman himself. But in the final scenes, we see Gotham united now not by the myth of Harvey Dent, but behind the truth of Batman. Blake, discouraged by the police in action with Bane, quits the force, but, knowing Bruce's true identity, goes and finds the Batcave. And at a cafe in Florence, Alfred, now unemployed, enjoys a drink when he spots a happy-looking Bruce Wayne at another table with Selina Kyle, perhaps having a happy future after all. So there's a lot to that. If you were spoiler-free before the movie and you haven't seen it yet, well, you're now spoiled completely because there were a lot of things in this movie I did not see coming. A lot. Right there with you, Arnie. I mean, by revealing nothing about the plot going in, and I was mostly spoiler-free save for a few things that leaked well over a year ago, and those were rumors that I didn't really want, but people post on Facebook and you can't unread. But not knowing hardly anything about this movie, I have to say, it got me on a number of things, and we'll talk about them as we go through. Well, what we start with is something that people have been spoiled with if they decided to go see Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol in IMAX. Now, I didn't choose to do it this time. For Dark Knight, I saw the bank heist scene attached to I Am Legend. I thought that was worth $20. Maybe it was just I've never seen a Mission Impossible movie, or maybe I wasn't as hyped for this movie. I don't know, but for whatever reason, this is the first time that I saw this opening with the revelation of Bane. This six minutes had 
run. I was surprised. It never leaked on the internet. You know, I thought I was going to save some money. I'm like, ah, I just won't go. It'll get out there. I never saw this until I watched it for these viewings. But what's learned here? Essentially, we're introduced to Bane. I understand that's the essential point of this killer opening. It's like, let's give him a big scene that tells the audience, this is your bad guy, in the same way that that bank heist introduced Heath Ledger. But I don't quite get what's happening here. We're in Africa, I think. This is where the diamond mines that he operates as a mercenary are. And the CIA is collecting a scientist. Well, yes, it took my second viewing to fully understand most of what goes on during the first half of this movie and Bane's machinations with Daggett and with this scientist. But it was said later in the movie that a scientist discovered how to turn a fusion reactor into a nuclear bomb, and that scientist was later killed. So what's happening here is, after he wrote his paper on how to turn a fusion reactor into a nuclear bomb, Bane and the CIA were both bidding for this guy's services. The scientist decides to help the CIA... And so the guy who turns the scientist over to the CIA also has these three hooded men. Well, obviously this guy, and again, I got this on second viewing, was paid off and Bane is planting himself on that plane for the entire sake of finding out what the scientist has told them and kidnapping the scientists so that they can ultimately take Wayne's fusion reactor and turn it into a nuclear bomb. And so much is going on. There's one point where he taps the scientist's vein to pump blood into a corpse just to get the DNA. It's never mentioned again. And I'm like, what are they doing with the blood? What's going on? It's just one of those details. Nolan pays exquisite attention to detail. But it is all just to get the scientist, make everyone presume he's dead, and keep him in their captivity until they get Wayne's fusion reactor. Yeah, again, this is a two-hour, 45-minute movie. This scientist appears at the beginning of the film and then maybe like at the two-hour mark. It's been a while since we'd seen him. I had totally forgotten about him, why that whole plane sequence took place in the first place. It's just such a long period of time where we don't know anything about him. And, and you're right, Arnie. They tapped his blood. You know, I saw that the first time. I'm like, oh, okay, are they trying to plant DNA? It's never called back. As long as this movie is, I think there's some deleted scenes. There's some weird jumps in this film where I think they just had to cut stuff out because it was so long. I don't care about the scientist. You know, the scientist is ultimately going to serve whatever evil plot the villain is going to have. I pretty much got all that you're talking about, Arnie. But what I don't get from the scene is why the CIA would go, oh, wait, you have guys that work for Bane? Well, bring them on board, too. Who's Bane? And that's a question I'm going to be asking even after credits roll the second time. Well, they state that Bane is a international mercenary terrorist, and he's done some work for Daggett. They talk about some mines in Africa that Bane went and caused an uprising in allowing Daggett to take control of those. So he's probably on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. He's an instigator. Wherever he goes, civil unrest happens. People rally around him for whatever reason, and in a suicidal plot way even, and will give their lives for this guy. Yeah, and we see that right at the beginning here where one of the guys thinks he's going to get out of the plane. No, brother, 
you need to die. They're expecting one of us to be in here. I think there's a lot of things said very quickly. And with all the accents and muffled voices throughout this film, there's a lot of things that you could lose if you're not reading the script along with it, perhaps. <laughs> but yeah, it, t- it took me, a, again, two viewings to really get why everyone cared so much about Bane. There's just that drop line, as you said, Arnie, about the diamond mines, I think, that he helped secure and that he's some world mercenary that they know is dangerous for some reason. Let's just put it out there. This is not Heath Ledger. As little as we know about who the Joker is and where he comes from, he's a presence on screen and Bane is big and he sounds like Darth Vader. Darth Vader if he had a baby with Sean Connery. No, he sounds like he's taking my order at a jack-in-the-box. He does not (laughs) sound like Darth Vader. And I have problems with this movie, and it is called Bane. This will be coming up for me again and again. Why are people rallying around this figure? I get that he's scary. This opening's good in that way. When the plane's tipping over and he's falling down the seats, great. But, Arnie, you complain when Batman talks, you don't like it. Whenever Bane, I mean, you parodied the voice. I don't even have to. It's just absurd. They went with this as someone that is going to charm people. I mean, can you imagine if Che Guevara or any revolutionary spoke like this? They wouldn't have any followers. There's nothing charismatic or politicizing about this guy. I just don't see him as this figure where people are going to rally around him in mass. I get that he's a thug. I don't get that he is this charismatic revolutionary. I think what Nolan is and the writers are, are trying to get you to buy into why Bane is such a powerful leader is because they tie him into the League of Shadows. He's basically taken over. That's going to come up later. But once that reveal, I, I think I was able to buy it a little bit more. Why people were willing to commit suicide for this guy is because now he runs this world terrorist organization that we saw back in Batman Begins. Yeah, I mean, that's all I have to get from the opening. And it is awesome. I don't don't think it's nearly as good as the bank heist but when the plane falls away and they're just like dangling there in midair from a second plane i mean there is some great stuff here there's some incredible visuals it's the best action scene in the movie honestly it is just the best staged it's the closest we come to the semi-turn in dark knight uh, you know what, guys? I, I think we need to drop the comparison. I think we need to watch this movie and treat it as its own. And I will, but I think that that's a bar that's been set. We don't talk about Return of the Jedi and not mention Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I, I don't know. I felt with Amazing Spider-Man, some people were trying to make it sound good by saying, hey, let's not compare it to those better ones. But here, well, let's compare it all of a sudden. So you're saying now let's not make it sound bad by comparing it to the better one? <laughs> Empire Strikes Back, Dark Knight, those are A-plus movies. I don't expect every movie to be an A-plus. Are we going to compare every superhero film now to The Dark Knight? Why not? We already have for the past year. And, more to the point, this is a trilogy. This isn't an ongoing series. This isn't a reboot. This is something that is bringing what happened in the last two films to a close. It is being asked to be compared in these same ways. This is the same cast, the same director, the same writers trying to... Take the elements that have been done before and finish it. The comparisons are justly. And I agree with you. If we're going to do that, this movie is going to suffer for it. I want to put it out on the table right now. For those that had bought into the hype that this was the best of the bunch or as good as the other two, it's not. I'm going to put it out there right now. And I'm not going to judge the movie entirely for not living up to those expectations. But I want to make it clear. 
Dark Knight Rises does not rise due to the bar that had been set by the first two Batman Nolan films. An incredibly high bar. I think that's what should be pointed out. I feel this holds up in the trilogy thematically, and the conclusion this provides fits with Nolan's vision that he set up in the first two films. Yes, but it is missing a Heath. This has got an incredible hole in it. There is something missing here that the last film had. And you can feel it right from the get-go that this is not getting to those heights. The dizzy exhilaration that I had right from the beginning of Dark Knight really never happens for me for this entire movie. Which is not to say that I'm not going to recommend it or like it or can't appreciate what it's doing that's different but that I can feel almost instantly, kind of like the beginning of Alien 3 where they're all dead and we're on a prison planet. Suddenly we're in something darker, more dramatic, and they're not going for the quote-unquote fun of the last movie. Yeah, this airplane sequence, amazingly filmed, amazingly orchestrated. On the second viewing, I was really able to appreciate all the choreography and all the work and how good it looks. But it's no bank heist, even though it goes bigger, because... No Heath. It goes to show how important that is. And Stuart, you say you have a problem with Bane in general. I don't have that big of a problem with Bane. I think he's an adequate villain. I do have questions about him as we go through, but he's not as charismatic. He's not as gripping. We mentioned the voice and they did go back and fix his voice. So now he sounds like a narrator. He sounds like Morgan Freeman in March of the Penguins because his voice is just not connected to the scene anymore because it's all ADR. Especially with this opening scene, I think you're right, Arnie. It sounds like they really went out of their way to try to make him clear and so you could understand him. Because I think people's perception is the first time I couldn't understand him, so I'm not even going to be able to understand him throughout the whole film. So they wanted to set that up that, yeah, you could understand him. It's not that bad. And it seems very disconnected. There's other times in this film where I think Nolan kept the original audio and it's very muffled and different. I think his voice is inconsistent throughout the film, but I think they really amped it up in this first scene to make him audible. Yeah, when he has two masks on is when he's at his clearest. I always was getting some kind of Santa Claus vibe from him. It's almost ironic that this gentlemanly British voice, this almost soothing purr of a voice is coming out of this ventilator. I'm wondering, when they film this, do you think Tom Hardy actually spoke through something and that was recorded, or was it all ADR? Was it all done after the effect? Because part of the problem, I think, is just the disconnect of I never believe that that voice is coming out of that body. He spoke because at times, especially on the second viewing, I was paying attention to his throat and his Adam's apple bobbed to the cadence of his words. Yeah, I, I look for that too, looking for his jaw to be moving underneath that mask, and you do see it. Yeah, he- I saw it too, but like I said, I, just something about it, it's kind of like watching a foreign movie that's been dubbed or something. I just never believed that that voice was coming out of that mouthpiece. I agree. And I think maybe you could blame Nolan for that more than just, you know, the ADR because he wanted this more refined, gentlemanly voice coming from this hulking monstrous character he wanted that juxtaposition between the big bronze and these whoa this guy's actually smart too and he's you know he could charm you so i i think that was a deliberate choice to have that cadence that it has in this film i don't know that i ever am convinced that he could charm us i got a lot of questions about him when he starts taking over gotham but we'll get there when we get there Right. right. Let's look at Gotham. Now, we understand quickly it's been eight years since the event of Batman Begins in Dark Knight. That Batman year one actually really was only a year. He really was only a force for a year, and then he just kind of dropped out of the picture. And did we see 
Bruce sustain his leg injury? I mean, he took a fall with Dent, but... Yeah, when we last see him, he's running over trucks, though, and now he can't walk without a cane. I've seen The Dark Knight a lot of times, but I didn't remember a specific leg injury that would cripple him. He's pushing 40 now, and this is a person who's been shot and stabbed and jumped off buildings. Old injuries are going to flare up, and they're going to become even worse. No, I, I was trying to think about that, too, Arnie. Was there a specific leg injury? I don't think so. I just think it's he's been battered. They call it out. He's got no cartilage in either knee, in his elbow, like tons of damage damage all over this guy. Yeah, it's degenerative. He has the worst doctor ever, by the way. I've seen worse cartilage because you have none. Ha! He did go to a hospital that, like, normal people have to go to. So he's <laughs> just experiencing regular health care like the rest of us. <laughs> I agree. We're to understand that this is not for any one injury that he sustained. I mean, even they say even his like, kidneys are scarred. Everything. By being Batman for that year, it cost him that much. That's kind of hard to swallow because it doesn't feel like it was that many things that Batman did. Those two movies eight years ago, if he had been Batman all of this time, it might have been a little bit more understandable, but one year of your life. He did take several falls onto the hoods of cars. <laughs> I, I don't like to get into realism, but at Comic-Con one year, I went to a panel. What would it take to become a real Batman? And this was a, a physical therapist who had studied tons of martial arts and really researched it. And he said a real Batman doing what this guy does would last three years max before he would have to retire due to just body injuries and, and muscles giving out. So it, he did this for a year or two. Realistically, that's how it would work out. Okay. But it's a shocker because we don't think of Christian Bale as over the hill. You know, he's still a young, very buff guy. So to see him hobbling around on a cane is like, really? It kind of took me a while to get used to that. And it comes and goes. I will say that sometimes he's putting on the suit and putting on the act and we're to think it's all okay. And then sometimes, yeah, he gets a cane kicked out and falls on the ground and can't get up. He needs Metalert. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you, Stuart. It is shocking. Like, this is how your Batman film, your last Batman film, coming after The Dark Knight, which is just supposed to be huge and explosive, this is how you're going to spend the first half hour with Batman limping around on a cane as a shut-in. It is shocking to me that Nolan went this way. And people think that he's more like Howard Hughes. You know, it starts here at a party. It's Dent Day. It's actually been eight years since Dent, what, died? Or they passed the Dent Act? It's eight years since he died, so we can put that to bed. He's dead. Yeah, not coming back. And I never really thought that Two-Face would be back, but you never know. And he's got all these people gathered around him. He's watching from a balcony far away. They don't even know that he's there. They're here really to celebrate the fact that, well, the Dent Act is like the Patriot Act. It may have violated civil liberties. There may be people incarcerated without due process. But the point is, the mob is behind bars. There's no more organized crime in Gotham City. And it's not just Bruce who's down. We find out at this party that Commissioner Gordon, they call him the wartime commissioner, and he's going to lose his job because he's still on the watch. He's still vigilant against criminals, and there are none. And he's just a little too dour for the public image of new cleaned-up Gotham. And he lost his wife and kids. The wife and kids he fought so hard for, they left him. Yeah, th again, this is a... <laughs> down and out Batman film as we get started here. You know, Bruce Wayne, the shut-in. Gordon has lost his family. They're living in Cleveland. I mean... There's nothing more depressing than Cleveland. Ask Howard, the duck. I was going to say, when you choose Cleveland over Gotham, I mean, man, things must be bad. They want somebody young and fresh, like Matthew Modine? 
<laughs> Matthew Modine is going to be the young guy that takes away his job. I, that, that one's kind of a, a surprise. I know that Nolan's really good about pulling back forgotten 80s stars, but I was not anticipating the Vision Quest guy being the rival for Gordon's commissioner seat. Matthew Modine did not even recognize him this time around. Also at this party, Selena Kyle, Anne Hathaway, Catwoman. Three names there. They never call her Catwoman, and I think that was for the best. I always like Nolan's minimalist in playing with some of these supernaturally kind of villain characters. But she's got a costume, so he doesn't go totally minimalist. But yeah, they call her just the cat burglar. But right here in this scene, she captures me. I think she's really good in this film. I love the way she can turn her performance on a dime. She's a maid. She's a thief. She's pretending to be scared. She's strong. That's her entire shtick for the first hour and a half, and I like it. Thank goodness Nolan didn't figure out a way to resurrect some woman through CPR with cats and bring about Catwoman. This is the way Catwoman should be. She's a cat burglar. She wears some leather, some, I don't know, infrared goggles, some things so she could hear the safe and crack it. That's what Catwoman should be. You go back to the early days of Catwoman in the comics. She was just a lady that stole stuff. And, you know, Batman would always, like, get the stuff back from her, but then, like, trip himself so she could get away because he was crushing on her. But this is how Catwoman should be. No weird cat gods or anything like that. Just a thief. This was the part of the movie I was actually concerned about. Usually I put my faith in Nolan. Whatever he wants to do, I think will probably turn out. But Anne Hathaway, don't get me wrong. I think she's fun. She's nice, you know, but she's never been able to shake that Disney glow. Even when she's done tougher movies like Rachel Gets Married, I always think that it's a young girl trying to prove herself and she's trying so hard to be dark and it's just never quite working for me. I'm going to go ahead and just say it now. Anne Hathaway's performance here is my favorite thing in the movie. I think, hands down, this Catwoman is a whole lot of fun. And my real regret is that the movie doesn't really need her or feature her very well. But she is the best thing in the movie. I've seen her in quite a bit of stuff. Devil Wears Prada, Valentine's Day, that type of stuff. I knew she could act coming into this. But I wasn't sure if she could act tough. And so, in watching this one, I was really liking her. But... Am I the only one who got a bit of a Michelle Pfeiffer vibe? Some of her lines felt like they were written and delivered just like Pfeiffer back in 92. I think they are definitely paying homage to some of that stuff. I mean, we get a whole dance scene between the two like we did in Batman Returns. I think, and you know, I called out back when we were watching Batman 66 and some of those other ones, I noted, hey, I think there's elements here that Nolan's kind of playing with and trying to give a more realistic vibe to, but still nodding that, hey, yeah, I know those films happen. And so I did get a little bit of a vibe like that with some of her lines in this film. I didn't because to me it meant something else. Michelle Pfeiffer was all about, you know, women in the workplace and becoming a uber feminist. You know, here, I don't feel like Anne Hathaway is trying to prove some gender point by being a female cat burglar. She's just someone that has gotten by in a city of criminals by outrunning them, by being quicker and more agile, but being more adaptable than they are. And, you know, she proves this right here. You know, she gets into Wayne's secured off area. No one's seen him. No one goes near him. She gets into his high security area, cracks a safe that nobody's supposed to, and winds up wearing the jewels that I think those pearls were the ones that the dad was going to give the mom when they were executed way back in Batman Begins. Correct. 
So they're really nicely tying a lot of these things in here. But I really saw her more as the voice of, I guess, the contemporary adaptable youth. They wanted someone that was young, and she's just quicker than Batman. And I think that's the thing that they're going to play with, is that the villains are younger and faster, and Batman's just too old to play anymore. I really like this performance. I do, too. I really like it later when she's in that bar and she's pretending to be terrified and then just stands up and walks out. I really like it. But you say it's not gender warfare, Stuart, and you're right. She is here to represent class warfare. She is to make us understand why people would rally around Bane. She is a have-not trying to fit in in a world of haves. She is standing there at that party where she's dancing with Bruce predicting that class warfare is going to come and the people who are filthy rich are going to wonder how they could ever have it so good while other people have nothing like her. She is to give us the mindset of why people would rally around Bane when he comes in and pulls people out of their Trump towers and why the others would even agree to it and then show the regret later on when that happens. But there are other players. There's all these human villains. In fact, Bane himself is a mercenary, too. He's not the guy. He has been hired by Daggert, who is... He's on the Wayne Enterprises board, but he's almost a competitor. He wants to take over the company. He definitely wants Bruce out of the picture and wants to ruin him. He's the one that's pulling all the strings in the beginning of this. But he's not. He thinks he is, but it's really Talia who's doing it all, which you don't find out until the end. This is like a Joker scenario where everyone thinks they're in charge, but there's one person that's pulling the strings. Yes, it's messier, though. I mean, I think we can all agree that it's hard to process this movie, even after seeing it, about who's running what. It takes two viewings to kind of get the power play that's going on. At this point in the movie, we believe that Selena is her own operator, but has doing one job for this guy, Daggert, who is also hired Bane. Right. She's afraid of Bane, and she basically is trying to get away. Her hope is that she can get this job done, get what she's been after, and go. And what she wants is a lie. You know, I feel like a a big theme of this movie is that people want to believe in lies, they want to believe in easy truths, or they want to believe in easy answers that will enable them to go on. Her lie that she must believe is that there is some computer program out there called Clean Slate, that will wipe out all of her past. All the things that she has done criminally, she would like to wipe away and start again. And so if she can give the fingerprints and damn Bruce Wayne, then she can be free to be... I'm not sure what she wants to be. The character's not developed well enough to know, and maybe she herself doesn't know, but she can be free of being a cat burglar. Or just go on to steal more without the rap sheet and being such a quick suspect. I found this to be one of the weakest parts of the entire movie, is her desire. She just continually is demanding this clean slate from everyone she deals with, this belief in something that she's eventually told doesn't exist and doesn't buy it and still keeps going for it. I found that in the previous films, Nolan was good at the subtle metaphor, but here, her long speech, any 12-year-old with a cell phone can find out anything you've ever done, it, it just felt too obvious and a little bit too undeveloped. I just was not going with her plight, her clean slate. I get why she'd want it. I get that it's the theme of the film that, you know, we already spoiled the ending. It's what they eventually get at the end, both her and Bruce. But it felt ham-fisted and forced in when it's brought up in the movie. 
but she's not in this movie much. Nobody's in this movie much. Batman's gone for huge portions of the film. This is such an ensemble piece that, man, it's hard to figure out who a star is that we could get behind the whole time because Catwoman falls in and out of this movie for a good hour of it. Speaking as the fan with Catwoman, I just want to say they got the right characterization here. The, the best stories of Catwoman has always been she gets in over her head with the mob or with some villain, and she's trying to get away and trying to get that clean sweep. Maybe not start over to be a good person, but trying to start over for some reason. And Arnie, I, I'm kind of confused. I think Nolan is never really that subtle with his metaphors throughout these films. There's a lot of ham-fisted speeches, but I'm willing to go with it. But with this ensemble cast, it almost feels like this is an anti-Avengers. With the Avengers, every person was this big superstar here we got so many people but no one's the star we're breaking them all down giving them all their own separate stories it's a very different superhero movie we're watching here and it lacks focus because of it in the last film we had really three major players dent joker and batman most of it just told through joker and batman there were a lot of characters but not a lot of point-of-view characters. Here, there's just so many damn point-of-view characters, you forget things. They put Gordon in the hospital for half the film. <laughs> Everyone is laid out and in pain. I agree. Catwoman goes to jail. Bale gets thrown into a pit. Gordon gets thrown in the hospital. There are so many people that are put in solitary confinement. They're not interacting with each other. I think that's my issue, is that... With the last movie, Joker was pulling all the strings. We knew that. We understood that relationship. Here, if the idea that Bane and the League of Shadows are the ones pulling the strings, I'm not seeing it. Bane is not really in the first 40 minutes of this movie. And when we find out what he's doing, it makes no sense to me. We find out that there is a whole network of thrown away orphan boys that <laughs> after the age of 16, they're not allowed to be cared for by the Wayne funded charity. And so they literally go to the sewer where Bane puts him in fight club. Yeah, it makes sense when you find out that what he's doing is underground construction and he's using people, but he still needs more laborers, so he hires these 16-year-old boys. The plot point for Bane that makes no sense to me is go to the stock exchange, take them all hostage, and commit fraudulent trades under Bruce Wayne's name. Like, the next day, Bruce Wayne can't go, hey, you know the stock exchange was held up yesterday. <laughs> Do you think maybe some trades that occurred after 4.50 p.m.? Because it's right as it's closing. Sun is setting in the sky. You ever think something that occurred right as it closed at night might not be real? Perhaps we should just shut down the entire board until we figure out what these criminals did? They do call out that in the long term, they'll be able to prove it's fraud. In the short term, they should be able to prove it's fraud. <laughs> I don't know the mechanizations of the stock market. That's why I don't participate in it. I don't get it. I don't get how big business works. I understand. It does seem far-fetched. But did it bother me? Uh, a little bit, maybe. But I'm willing to go with it. I'm willing to go with it because I have to. But I'm not willing to go with it because I like it. Because it's dumb. And I don't expect dumb from Nolan. I'm right there with you, Arnie. That is the problem. As Bane, we see him nab a, a scientist. We have no idea why. 40 minutes pass. We find out that he's collecting orphan boys to, yeah, Jack Wall Street. I feel like this is a pandering fantasy. Nolan is preying on the idea that we're all angry about how the housing market and Occupy Wall Street thing turned out, the bailouts, and that this is really here because we want to see somebody with a gun burst in and put these 
stockbrokers in their place for being criminals. Here's where I do have to give Nolan some credit, though, because damn, did he have his finger on the pulse of America. Not bad for a Brit. You know, all the time he's commenting about 9-11 and America, but... Tell me you couldn't watch this film and not think about the Occupy movement. And I was in the middle of an Occupy protest, not by choice. I wasn't part of them, but I was in Times Square last October when the Occupy movement stormed Times Square. And I was heralded along by these police who threatened to steal my camera and arrest me. And... I'm sitting here watching these scenes with the stock market and hearing Anne Hathaway's speech about the haves and the have-nots, and I'm like, damn, this whole thing's the Occupy movement. This script was written two years ago, and it was filmed before there was an Occupy movement. You know, I never think it's that simple with Nolan. Yes, there's definitely that whole feeling of Occupy Wall Street and rich people are evil. But when you look at everything that goes on this film, why are these 16-year-old boys being kicked out? Because they're no longer receiving funding from the Wayne Foundation. Why aren't they receiving funding from the Wayne Foundation? Because the Wayne Foundation isn't making a profit. All those Occupy people think profit is so evil, but here it was doing some good when that profit's gone. I think it's much more complicated with Nolan. It's never black or white. There's all these different shades. You could go too far with a revolutionary movement. You could go too far with a profit motive. It's about trying to find this balance here. Actually, this was the first time where I felt like the balance wasn't fair. I would never say in all my characterizations of the past movies that even though they followed the George Bush template of a guy that publicly looked like a buffoon but secretly was using his father's men to run a shadow organization to stop the terrorist, it never celebrated a political ideology. Here, I actually feel like it is starting to become sort of a corporate fantasy. The villains are the Occupy Wall Street movement. They're the ones that don't understand that corporations are the only ones that can save them, and so they're in the wrong for, yeah, barging in here at gunpoint and blowing away traitors and making, yeah, exactly, Arnie, making deals that should be easy to nullify and that no one should be trading with a floor that has been hijacked. I mean, this seems like this could be resolved and that, yeah, this is a dumb plot. This This is the second plot I've seen Bane enact, and I'm still not getting who he is, what he's about, and what he hopes to achieve, and I'm just not compelled. It's not that I don't know, it's that I'm beginning to not care about Bane. And when it comes to the Occupy movement, to bring this back around to Batman scribe Frank Miller, Frank Miller went on the record saying things about the Occupy movement that got a lot of people to dislike him and flame him on Twitter and on his homepage. But it feels that this movie is going along that entire thing. Again, it was made pre-Occupy movement, but this is almost like a fantasy of if the Occupy movement got their way and got their anarchy and took down the 1%, what would happen? And you see what happens when Bane takes over Gotham. It's crazy courtrooms and mass murder and rape and beaten. Which isn't too far from reality when you look at a lot of countries that have gone through revolution. Nolan is assuming that the average viewer has some sympathy towards the Occupy movement that, yeah, Wall Street and rich people, they've kind of screwed us. And so maybe he doesn't make that argument as strong. You know, he shows some decadence with these people. But how many people have thought about the other extreme, about what happens in some third world nations where thugs run the government, where it's mob rule? And really, maybe he's tying more into the political climate, since again, this was preoccupied, about how partisan we've become, how bitter the political battle has gotten in this 21st century, and how in my lifetime, I can't ever think of a time where being a moderate 
is a place where both sides hate you rather than both sides finding some way to accept you. And so here, maybe it's going more Republican versus Democrat. And we've seen in three films, Nolan seems to side more with the conservative side. Yes, there's a lot here. I think that it's awesome that he's going for it. I think that by being contemporary and exploring these topics, he is on the cusp of all of this. And that's exciting. My problem is, as we go through this plot, I don't get the revolutionary and I don't get the people that are swelling up behind the revolutionary. Catwoman, again, I want to remind you, is afraid of Bane. She is not charmed by Bane. She does not listen to him when he goes off and espousing his values. She is going to basically do what it takes to get out with a clean slate. And what that ultimately means is she has to hand them Batman. And Batman had just returned and we see the police, especially Matthew Modine after Batman. I think this is a great character plot building device with Nolan here. You just have this huge Wall Street breakout. Batman shows up and the entire police force goes after Batman. You get these scenes, great shots where like, 500 police cars are going after this guy on his bat pod. And Batman goes back to Alfred. And Alfred says, you let the bad guys get away because you drew the attention. You're being selfish. You don't trust the cops. You don't trust anyone. I like how this isn't just a cool car chase scene, but it ties into this theme of trust and telling the truth. And it all ends up backfiring on Batman. This big triumphant return. We spend a half hour of this dude limping around hiding out in his manner and now he comes back and he kind of screws up things he makes them worse why has it been eight years since he put on the cape and cowl it wasn't just the physical injuries he sustained it wasn't just that he is now quote-unquote a bad guy right i mean i guess we're to understand that he thinks that the system works that by allowing the lie of Harvey Dent to go, they can now prosecute criminals in a way that does not require vigilantism. He's just not needed. He's always trying to get away from needing to be Batman. That was his whole motive to try to get Rachel back, is if right. Batman's not needed anymore, I could go get the girl. And he's always trying to move there, and at the end of the Dark Knight, he is then the villain. He's taken the rap for these murders, for murdering Harvey Dent. He's public enemy number one. Why would he want to keep running around? Yeah. Right. I had thought at the end of the last movie that he would, and he'd just have to evade the cops and continue to stop the criminals. I didn't get at the end of the last movie that it was retirement, but I think we're supposed to get from this that keeping the lie and having all of this criminal activity persecuted on behalf of a lie is eaten away. That's why Gordon's life is in such shambles. That's why Batman is in such shambles. It's as much a breaking of his spirit for the lies they've had to commit as it is of his body. He's become so nihilistic. Everybody hates him, and he'd held up this ideal of being with Rachel, and I love that they use the Maggie Gyllenhaal Rachel photo, not the Katie Holmes <laughs> Rachel photo. I mean, Katie Holmes had more screen time overall. <laughs> But because of Rachel's death, he wants to die. And he's first just cut himself off and is basically the living dead. His whole house is covered in sheets, much like an abandoned house. Even though he's there, he's like a ghost in his own house. And when all this happens, he becomes inspired to get back out there. But Alfred calls it out. He's kind of hoping to die so he can go be with Rachel. Yeah, that's the thing I want to explore here, is what makes him turn this around? Yes, he is trapped in the middle. 
he is unable to go be Batman, and he is unable to go on and have a happy life because he's still grieving about Rachel, and there was nobody else for him. So my guess is that it's meeting Selena, that we're to understand there's a spark there from the beginning, that the reason why he goes back to the Batcave after eight years is to check up on her, and so that Selena is now the guiding principle for why he's putting on the Batsuit. It's not Bane. In fact, nobody knows about Bane except Alfred. For some reason, Alfred has all this historical knowledge about Bane. He got, he got it from Green Goblin's butler. <laughs> There's a whole society. of <laughs> Butlers with knowledge we only share at the crucial moments. Well, there, there are scenes where Bruce Wayne's just telling, hey, Alfred, go take care of this. Go research this for me. I think it's meeting Selina, but I also think that this is the time when he was wanting to emerge. We saw him spying on the people at the party. He didn't have eight-inch long fingernails. I kind of get the feeling he was just bored. He just had sat there long enough and was ready to go. I didn't get that Selena inspired him to do it, although he was curious why she stole his fingerprints, and maybe some of it was self-preservation, knowing that wanting his fingerprints couldn't be a good thing. But... I couldn't find an exact motive. It's he was wanting to put the bat suit on. He was looking for an excuse to put the bat suit on. He what he, he didn't need to put the bat suit on. Let's not forget Gordon gets shot in the leg after Bane captures him and so Bruce goes to talk to Gordon and Gordon tells him about this Bane guy that the Batman has to come back to stop him. It's one of the first scenes we saw even in the trailers. Yes, but it's terrible the fact that the reason why Batman must do what he has to do is because his butler feels like this guy that lives in the sewer that hasn't done anything must be stopped. No, it's Gordon that feels that. It's both of them, yes. Yeah, who barely got a word in before he fell into the sewer water, a poor guy. That was even harder than watching him get shot. It was just like, oh, just don't open your mouth. And another lazy bit, he carried that speech around for two days in his coat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. This meeting allows Bane to find out the truth that Dent was corrupt. And so that gets him to mobilize. Wasn't he already working against the city? I mean, these relationships become very, very nebulous here. I never felt like in the previous two movies, I had less information than I needed in the moment. And here, for a large stretch of this movie, I'm just kind of confused. The only thing I can hang on is that Alfred thinks Bruce becoming Batman is a suicide mission. That ultimately, if he does this, it will kill him and that will free him. And that's the only way he thinks he can be free from his pain, is by being Batman until he is dead. But by the same token, don't you get that Lucius wants him to be Batman again? When Wayne goes to find out why they have no money because of his fusion reactor that could become a nuclear bomb, Lucius is like, hey, I got some new toys for you. Don't you want them? Everyone wants Bruce back. And yeah, none more than Lucius. You know, he's the head of a company who develops Batman devices and he can't have anyone implement them. You know, they got the bat, this flying car contraption, and he can't wait to see somebody use it. There's no autopilot. It needs a driver. So why not Bruce? I think we're missing some of the little details here. Fox doesn't want people to use these weapons. He's been consolidating them. Again, there's this theme of trust. He's been consolidating them over the years because after Thomas Wayne died, Wayne Enterprises started up 14 different companies that started developing all these weapons. Fox is here consolidating them so they can't be used. And yeah, maybe he wants Batman to use them because that's the one person that can use them. But Well, yeah, it's it's kind of like nuclear deterrence. We want to amass all of these weapons. No, he absolutely wants to develop these weapons. We just don't want anybody else 
having these weapons. Yeah, you can't say that Lucius doesn't want to see Batman get in the bat. He's also working to make sure that nobody else has access to it. And can we just all please agree to put to bed, these are the realistic Batman films when you have this bat hovercraft that flies through the city? <laughs> I don't think any of us ever claim that. This was a more plausible Batman is what I said. I've never bought into that this could happen in real life. I will say this. The bat is cool flying around. I got a real Blade Runner vibe. All it needed was like a geisha projected on a skyscraper <laughs> and I would have totally seen like the Ridley Scott movie happening in the Batman universe. I think it was fun. Nothing is as good as the bat pod i'm gonna say that and when it returns i'm still more overjoyed about the bat pod than i ever am about the bat did the bat pod do that weird wheel over wheel thing in the last movie because i like the bat pod but when it started going sideways i'm like that's cool but it looks bad no it doesn't look bad that's so great if they ever designed this for a big wheel i know i'm much too big for a big wheel but i will be out there riding it because that looks like so much fun to turn a corner in that way Mechanically, I don't think that could ever work. I think there's like one shot of it in The Dark Knight. They definitely played up more here. And I was just overjoyed that Batman has reinvented the wheel, <laughs> literally, in this film. And it is awesome. I'm right there with you, Stuart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bat's cool. The bat pod's still the best thing. Maybe that's my review of this movie, too. It's like, yeah, that thing in the last movie was still better than this. But what we got here, okay. They had to give us something new. And they had to escalate. It had to be something Something bigger than a motorcycle. Flying car. Eh, okay. But this is the first film of Nolan's, not just his Batman films, but also looking at Inception and the Prestige, where I see the wires. He loves practicals. He went back to stop motion. And certain scenes with the bat pod and certain scenes where the tumblers have their guns coming out look just like Ed 209 from the original RoboCop stop motion effects. And I know people have some love for Harryhausen and things, but it's the first time that something looked like an effect to me. I liked them. I wouldn't have necessarily wanted them to be more CGI. I don't have a problem with this movie visually at all. I see the Ed 209 thing now that you mention it, Arnie, and maybe subconsciously that's why I liked it. I love RoboCop, and I, I totally see what you're saying. I liked it. It never distracted me. Also distracting me a little bit, I mean, there's so many damn characters, but we've got John Blake, Officer John Blake, becoming Detective John Blake, who is apparently the only person in all of Gotham smart enough to realize, hey, Bruce Wayne, Batman, Batman, Bruce Wayne. Yeah, right? We had this vigilante for one year, and then he killed somebody and disappeared. And Bruce Wayne used to be this playboy that was partying around, and then he disappeared and started having medical problems. There's no correlation. <laughs> yes, I don't know that John Blake is smart, but he's smarter than anyone else in Gotham City, including Gordon, who still never put it together. I always thought, because there's the scene where Blake is asking Gordon, don't you want to know who Batman is? And he's like, I know who he is. He's the Batman. But I kind of convinced myself, oh, he knows it's Bruce. They work together. He just doesn't care that it's Bruce. But he's not so stupid as to not realize. And then at the end, when he's like, tell me who you are. <laughs> I'm like, really? Really? And then he's like, oh, Bruce Wayne. I'm like, oh, you just lost all respect. The respect I had for you for three films flushed when I realized, wow, you're dumb. I am so with you, Arnie. It's true. I agree. He was another character that wanted to believe a lie. You know, like, I know what the truth is, but I'm going to just believe that you're Batman. I'm not going to believe what is obvious. But he really didn't know. 
Oh, how did he ever run a police department? He didn't. Batman did. <laughs> Giving him irradiated bills. He's as big a puppet as Bane. Yeah. Anyway, John Blake is yet another voice in Bruce Wayne's ear telling him, you need to be Batman. You need to be Batman. Everyone wants Batman back. I'm not sure why, but everyone does but Alfred. Alfred is the only naysayer. Alfred wants what's best for Bruce. Everyone else wants what's best for, I guess, Gotham, which is Batman. Alfred and Lucius both get very, very short shrift this film. Alfred, there's the scene where he's finally like, in order to stop you from being Batman, I'm going to tell you the truth about this letter. And I'm pretty sure Nolan's like, damn, if only I'd cut that scene of him burning the letter. If I had him just <laughs> yeah. putting the letter in a safe, the scene would have played so much better. <laughs> and so he's trying to convince Bruce that Rachel did, in fact, write this letter. And this is the one scene I actually really like Christian Bale in this movie. I think it's the best he's been in the three movies. He seems finally relaxed and in the role and maybe works better a little world weary. But this one scene, he's finding out the truth about Rachel and he just looks so neutral. It's like he doesn't know how the character should react. So he's just going to do nothing and just goes, goodbye, Alfred. And goes to bed, and that goodbye is a big goodbye, but there's no emotion. And then he wakes up, and he's surprised Alfred's left after he just fired him. Well, I think what I took this scene to mean was he didn't believe it. You know, here's another character believing a lie. Rachel was waiting for me. I was going to have a normal life, and now I can't have that. And I can't be Batman, so I am nothing. And he thinks that Alfred is saying anything. He's playing the Rachel card to get him to stop from being Batman. And he doesn't want to listen to it. You know, I think he's calling his bluff. I really don't think that he thinks Alfred will leave until, yeah, the doorbells are ringing and suddenly he has to answer his own door. But I'm a little disappointed in Alfred. I know that he's looking out for Bruce. I know that he is a good figure and I should like him. But I don't like Michael Caine in this. It's a relief when he disappears and we can have someone more like John Blake being at Bruce's side. I think that the transition to a younger demographic in this case is a very good thing. Well, yeah, because Alfred is saying, don't be Batman. None of us in the audience want that. We all want Batman, and this is the one voice of perhaps reason saying, maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe you should trust the cops. Maybe you should hand over your technology and help society that way. None of us want to see that. We go to Batman. We don't want police procedures. We <laughs> want to see a guy in a costume. This is not the film we want to see about giving up. Absolutely. And we let's face it, we are all John Blake. We are all the young kids who have grown up idolizing either Bruce and or Batman. You know, he wants to see this partly to fulfill his own maturation. He is a product of the Wayne-funded orphanage. So it makes sense. I'll tell you what, though. I don't buy that he figured it out because he met Bruce once and Bruce's smile told him. That was forced the idea that he could figure it out because they were the same but yet it sets up that ending so much that i feel i saw coming so far away there's a lot of things in this movie i actually saw coming some surprised me but some i saw coming and that was one of them is the it all started with the we're the same i see the same smile i have thing and then later on he's investigating and he throws the gun away i'm like oh now he doesn't use guns i see where this is leading to 
Yes, you're right. And it had been a rumor. You, you guys said you were surprised by turns in this movie. It had been a rumor for a long time I knew about. I thought he was playing Robin. I believed the whole time that Joseph Gordon-Levitt at some point was going to get into a greenish, reddish, yellowish costume and become a partner to Batman. That is what I believed was, would happen. I did not believe that would happen. Nolan denied that would ever happen. I didn't think it had any place in Nolan's universe. I still don't think a Robin in an acrobat outfit has place in a <laughs> Nolan Batman universe, but this is Batman and Robin. It's just not the Robin we know. He's in a different costume, and that's kind of an ingenious way for Nolan to go about it. Yeah, the minimalist approach. Credit where credit's due. This is what Burton wanted to do was have Robin be Robin but never hit a costume in Batman Returns and set up that character so that in the next movie he could be costumed. And that's what Nolan does here. And it works. I don't know that we needed to find out at the end his name was Robin. I don't know that he does anything in this movie other than provide that link that somebody else could take on the Batman mantle. It's been said so many times, Batman is a symbol. It doesn't matter who Batman is. And so it sets up that somebody else could be Batman. But he's an extra ingredient that we only needed to provide the hope that Batman's fights continue even if Bruce's don't. Yeah, I agree. Another surprise I saw coming... And again, I have to blame Internet Rumor for this a little bit. One of the few spoilers I did here is that... A little girl went on a talk show and said she was playing Talia al Ghul. And so I had it in my head a seed that Talia al Ghul might show up. And so when Miranda shows up, a dark-haired, semi-ethnic, foreign woman who seems to be Bruce's savior and sleeps with him, I never thought she was the girl in the prison, because the movie lies to me, and we'll get to that prison story in a few minutes. But I thought she was Bane's half-sister. I didn't know how in the plot she was, but I always felt she was the daughter of Liam Neeson. Yeah, I always got the feeling that there's something sinister behind her. I had heard rumors of Talia or, not to take off the comic book fanboys, Thalia, but I'm calling her Talia because that's how she goes by the movie. There was always something sinister about her. I didn't know how it would play out, especially with that prison scene. They got me with that one. Well, it's because they lie. They say the boy who escaped the boy the child. No, they don't, don't say the boy they, they say the child uh, it's got he's got a very androgynous haircut and so we make presumptions and you know what we get for that in a christopher nolan movie when you assume things we are shown things to lead us to believe that is a boy escaping seeing it twice though they talk about a boy born in prison they use a male acronym maybe he switches the stories he's telling because i believe after two viewings both bane and talia were born in that prison but Alfred talked about a rumor of him being born in prison. But yes. the, the two doctors in there refer to a boy. They talk about a boy. They do say child a lot, but they also say boy. And so they lie. This is what pissed me off about the prestige, too, is sometimes Nolan lies. I don't know. I don't think they lied. I paid attention to it in the second viewing. I don't recall that. I don't have the script in front of me, though. So The point of the matter is, she is shown up to be an environmental advocate and will end up being the real villain. I did know this. This was a, yes, exactly. Internet rumors had already swirled around that she was going to be Talia. I had a feeling that she and Neeson would be popping back here at the end. She is Neeson's daughter. You know what tells me blatantly, even if I hadn't read that internet rumor, I, the, the second that I had it confirmed was when she shacks up with Bruce. And there's a scar on her back, 
and she's stoking a fire and he says, you're really good at that. I'm like, with all this metaphor about fires rising and what have you, I'm like, you have just blatantly told us that she's the bad guy. Yeah. My first viewing, I was actually pissed off about this character in there because I'm like, they're introducing this environmentalist love interest. There were too many characters already with Daggett and Daggett's goon, whose name I can't even remember, but has this weird face that looks like he's a V alien. Striver. Yeah, Striver. And Bane and Bane's henchmen and all of these people, when they introduced this Miranda Tate, I actually was mad. I'm like, enough characters. But when she sleeps with Bruce and I start putting it together, she's not just like Daggett who's going to die in the first act. She's really something and then started realizing who she might be. I liked the film for that tease. And I didn't get that she was the one who escaped for the reasons I say. I think the film misdirects to the point of mistruth that she was the child and Bane was her protector. Yeah, can we walk through that right now? I know it's the big end reveal, but I'd rather, just so that we can understand her for the rest of this movie, try to follow up what's going on here. All right, Raz Agul, Liam Neeson, when he's a younger man, slept with the daughter of a warlord. And married her. And was thrown into a pit, and then was pulled out of a pit, and then the pregnant woman was thrown into the pit, gave birth to Talia died there, and Talia escaped, found Roz, Roz came back, and freed everybody. Yes, with the exception of Roz being thrown in. I don't know that Roz ever was thrown into the hole. He was taken there and then set free instead of put in the hole. Yeah, you find out that his wife made a deal with, I'm assuming her father, that if he would be exiled, that she would go into the pit. So I get all that. That's all very cool. I'm fine with it. Who's Bane? Bane had to be born in that prison because there's a couple of things. There is a clue that Bane isn't the child because when Batman is fighting Bane and Bane breaks Batman's back, Batman turns out the lights. Another metaphor that goes through repeatedly is turning off lights. And Batman turns off the lights and Bane goes, The darkness is my friend. I didn't see light until I was an adult. And so he was also born in that prison. So maybe that's why he felt the kinship with Talia. So there was another pregnant woman that got thrown in the pit? Yes. Bane was an adult, though, by the time Talia was in there. Reciam, he's the one that picks Talia up and helps her climb that wall as the other prisoners beat him to death, supposedly. So Bane is, like, centuries old. Oh, he's, like... 20 years older, maybe? Yeah. But he's old enough for Alfred to have known, because he's the jewel thief, right, that Alfred was talking about no, in the past. No, no. No, no, that's not him. How does Alfred know anything about this man that was in a pit in some faraway place? Because he's a known mercenary throughout the world. He reads the paper. He probably reads The Guardian. He's British. All right, so there's no real good reason other than Alfred has been established as a character that knew more than Bruce. Bruce was out of touch, so he was just staying current, and everybody knows about this terrorist. Mm -hmm. But back in the day before he was a terrorist, he, like Talia, was born in this pit, and maybe that's why he became her protector while she lived in the pit? Yes. That they bonded on the pit and that he fell in love with this child? He didn't fall in love. He became like her father. You know, I didn't get that there was necessarily romantic love, but he was her protector. He kept her safe from all the other prisoners who probably would have raped the child. Right. And eventually helped her escape at his own detriment, which is why they pummel him and he has to wear the mask to keep the pain at bay. Right. That is the only time we see Tom Hardy's face is that brief moment where his turban's pulled down and she's escaping. Okay. 
So once she comes back with her dad, he's allowed to be rescued, but Roz trains him and then decides you're too gross or I don't like you. No, he's a bad memory. He's a reminder because Roz didn't know his wife and daughter were being put in that pit. So Bane was too painful a memory to keep around. It wasn't that he was too gross or too crazy. It's that... It was a sign of Roz's own failing. Okay. And so he excommunicates him, and Talia goes with Bane. Yes, she chooses to ignore her father and does not get back into the family business until Batman allows him to fall and die in Batman Begins. Roz is dead. That's another one. Two-Face didn't come back. Roz didn't come back. He's dead. He came back in a vision. Right. We're to understand that that was all within Wayne's head. Yes. Okay. I am getting this because we are walking it through, and I appreciate that greatly, that you guys have answers that I did not pick up on. I think the movie does a really crummy job of telling this story. Uh, We got it from the movie. Second viewing. (laughs) Uh, I got a lot of this the first time around. Second clarified some things, especially mumbled dialogue that was hard to understand, but my opinion didn't change much from the first to the second viewing. I got all the basics there. It may be in there, but it's garbled, and dramatically, I'm not hooked into this story. I don't care about this plight. I'm not moved by it as a film. I'm being told a story, and I'm trying to process it so I can understand the movie that I'm here to watch. But it, as a subplot, does not work for me at all. And it comes with very heavy-handed metaphors visually, because it's told in flashback It reminded me of Inception sometimes. He'd show flashes of things that happened in the past as stories are being told. But then as part of the story is being recounted by Alfred about how he rised from the pit, we're seeing the Batman outfit rise from the ground. And it's talking about the pit spits something back. They are telling us in many ways visual cues and uh, historical things that Bane and Wayne are the same thing. They even rhyme. Bane and Wayne are the two halves of a complete whole. One, lightness and dark. Batman puts on a suit, has a funny voice. The flesh that doesn't cover his face is the stuff that gets covered in Bane's. They both fell down a well, and they're trying so hard to draw these direct parallels between the two of them. Every Batman villain we've seen in these films have been that. The Joker broke the law to bring about chaos. Batman breaks the law to bring about order. Batman uses fear to intimidate criminals. Scarecrow uses fear to intimidate the normal citizen. Ra's al Ghul wants to destroy society to fix it. Batman wants to work within society to fix it. Like, every Batman villain is a twisted version of Batman. This isn't, like, something they just came up with. This is the third film we've seen this. I agreed. And is this supposed to be the most impressive? Because I feel like when you put it in contrast, I'm not getting that. Like, when we finally get to the big moment, and Catwoman has fulfilled her duties and got Batman trapped down in the sewer with Bane, and we're to understand that, yes, they were both born in darkness or whatever. And both trained by the League of Shadows and yeah this is where Nolan's propensity to let things go on too long in expository talk really kind of hurts I want Bane to shut up like he's and that's the actual inflection <laughs> yeah it is because so much of this is told to me in this way with that voice through that mouthpiece and I can never even see Hardy's face this is a hole in this movie we are here for Bane whatever these other villains and side characters are I wanted this to be a fight about Batman and Bane and this is the movie's weakest component I didn't come in wanting to see Batman versus Bane you know any comic book fan especially from the 90s 
Bane's a huge character. He is the character that broke the bat, broke his back, you know, deduced who his secret identity was, waged all-out war on Gotham to wear Batman down because he knew he couldn't just go outright and fight him. And then he defeats him. And Batman goes off and has to slowly cure his back while uh, someone else takes the role. Like, if you've read the comics, that's what you're coming in here expecting. But we've said so much, these films, they're bigger than Batman. They're about Gotham. And here we're getting this film about Gotham. It's bigger than the both of them here. It's neat to finally see a good version of Bane, not that Batman and Robin version. Monkey work. <laughs> so to be clear, you are happy with the, like, the fight we get, the way that the back gets broken. You're happy with the fact that he dumps Bruce off back in the pit and we don't really see him for the next half hour. I didn't come into this movie with a lot of expectations because I didn't know what to expect. I knew who some of the characters like Bane were. And did I expect Batman to have his back broken? Yes, that happened. Mm-hmm. But what I was seeing unfold before me was Nolan continuing the themes that he set up and begins in The Dark Knight and letting it play out to a logical conclusion in this universe that he's established. And that fascinated me. I'm watching a superhero film, a summer blockbuster superhero film, you know, not like Ghost Rider coming out in February, but your tentpole film. And this is what it's giving us. Totally broken characters, but it works within this universe that Nolan has set up. That's the view of a Batman fan who knows Bane and Nightfall and everything. For me, I knew a little bit about this stuff, never read the comics, never will, but I just wanted a good movie. If it was Batman versus Bane, that would have been great, but I suspected going in that Hardy couldn't be Joker and that they'd go a different way, because you have to. The studios wanted Nolan to do the next one just to do the same thing and make it Riddler. And Nolan says, no, I want to go a different way with it. I want a different type of villain. But this is working for me because of the characters we're given. The whole thing is just, there's, again, so many characters, especially during the first half of the film, so many subplots that don't seem to tie together until you're on your second viewing and you know how they all do. I'm with you, Stuart, that it's really hard to get into, which is why here is both the best thing that happens to the film and the worst. They kill off a whole bunch of characters, they finally set the plans in motion, but before they do that... Bane and his people put Bruce in an airplane, fly him to God only knows where, drop him in a hole, and fly back to Gotham? No. It's really easy for him to get back to the hole both times. It's easy to get Bruce there. It's easy for him to return. They're just able to go back to wherever that is in Asia and drop him off in that absurd prison that I don't even understand how it's just a hole. Like, how do they get fed? Where are the guards? Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Whatever. Well, they don't need guards if you can't get out of the hole. I guess. All of these things that we've discussed, all these things in the periphery are just that. They are peripheral. They are support systems that will help me appreciate a battle that, correctly or not, I have presumed is the centerpiece of the movie. That the centerpiece of this movie has to be a fight against good and evil as represented by Batman and Bane. And the problem that I'm having, and it really does start once the back is broken, that I don't see Bane taking that mantle and being this evil. You know, he's got them reckoning. But I really don't see that. I really don't even know what he wants. At the end of this movie, I have no idea what he wants or what he's about. And he's a goon. This, oddly enough, plays out more like that Batman and Robin movie. He's just the goon that supports the environmental chick that wants to kill everyone. 
You say Batman and Robin. You want to know what I was starting to think of during this next scenes, though, where Bruce is in prison after having his back broken by Bane and he's, like, training and everything? We have Talia al Ghul in this movie, but in my mind kept going Talia Shire. And I'm like, why am I thinking of Talia Shire? Oh, because I'm watching Rocky Three. It's Bane as Clubber Lang, and Bruce Wayne is the Rocky who's become not as fit, not as into the fighting. He has to get the eye of the bat and get back out there and kick some ass. Yeah, I can see it. You know, I wasn't on that retrospective, but I can see what you want. Yes, in some ways, this is a boxing movie. It is about when will these two get back in the ring? How will the old man find his spark again and be able to pull this off? And Bane even has a mohawk. If you look at where that stripe is on his mask, it's like the Mr. <laughs> T mohawk. Although I would have loved to see Mr. T in such a pimp and coat. That fur coat, ooh, I need that this winter. <laughs> He's wearing it on hot days. I imagine it doesn't smell very good. But what I remember about a Rocky movie is all of those problems are solved usually in a musical montage, and we're back in the ring pretty quick. The problem for this movie is there's a good hour before we're going to get these two back in the ring again. I feel it's a mistake that the bomb has five months before it goes <laughs> off. Five Who does that? months. This is where the movie dangerously flirts with becoming bad. This second act of the movie, after the back is broken and Bane is liberating Gotham and he has a five-month bomb, this movie really kind of goes off the rails. And this is the part where I feel like Nolan stops asking why. A central thing that always keeps me hooked is that I always understand why and things do not make sense in this middle portion of the movie. Let's take the crux of it. The point is Bane has this bomb. And Talia, controlling Bane, wants to finish her father's work and destroy Gotham because Gotham is corrupt and Gotham is evil. And by destroying it, it roots out that evil and also sends a message to evildoers everywhere, right? That that was Roz's plan in the first film. Right. I always thought that Roz might have given them a chance. Am I wrong on this? Yeah. You're wrong. Gotham could never have proven him wrong. He was never open to the idea that a society could get better. It only could get worse. Yeah. But here... Because a known terrorist takes control of a city, cuts it off from society through more convenient, let's not ask whys, and does that for five months, when the city goes boom, it's not like people are going to go, oh, that criminal element was really bad. They're going to go, oh, that international terrorist warlord was really bad. They're not going to learn anything. No, correct. I don't think the whole point of the League of Shadows was to teach people a lesson. They were just there to take out cities that have reached the height of decadence. What are they getting with this five-month pause, though, with this five-month media circus? What are they achieving? I guess psychologically torturing Bruce Wayne. Yes, and the city. I mean, they're just totally turning it upside down, you know? Some very chilling scenes where you have people running through the homes and tearing people out of them, and, you know, I kind of chuckle, but it's also terrifying. You get the doorman, like, throwing the woman to the ground, ripping her fur coat off. It's to turn the society upside down and then destroy much like poisoning them with fear gas and having them tear themselves apart. Were people going to watch that and go, wow, if we get too decadent, we might get really scared of each other and pull each other apart. No, there obviously there is something else at hand there. I think this plot is bigger. I don't think it's that different from what was in Begins, though. This is a lame-ass attempt at trying to do a Joker plot. Joker was really the master in trying to figure out what are people's worst impulses and how can I make them act on them in a scenario. 
I don't believe that this would play out this way. I do not believe that if someone blew up every bridge, put a nuclear bomb in the middle of it, killed the mayor, trapped the police force underground, and said, let's party with the prisoners that I just let out, that it would play out in this way. It was taking me back to Burton's 1989 Batman. I believe that city, when they're all killing each other for the money Joker's throwing around, would do it. But this is a Gotham that's been pretty much crime-free for eight years, that it could so easily delve into anarchy. Maybe it is frighteningly realistic. Maybe it's because most people would do the Matthew Modine and just hole up and not go outside, and the only people who go outside are the looters, the rioters, the rapists, and the killers. That's how I took it. First of all, you have Bane's army, you have a thousand locked-up, pissed-off prisoners going out there to rile up the more disenfranchised people. Yeah, I think this would happen. You know, with the cops underground, uh, you know, I don't worry about having to fight bad guys because I got a police force to do it. But Arnie pointed out, I think very astutely, that Catwoman was our in for that. Catwoman is us, the disenfranchised, and we will bond with what Bane is doing if she will bond with what Bane is doing. She's thrown in prison by Blake. She's given the opportunity to go out. We don't even know what she's doing, but she's definitely not in the Legion with Bane. I don't understand who supports Bane. You know, I keep going back to Fight Club because he has this network of blue-collar people that think he's cool and pour cement with dynamite in it and will die for whatever he says. I get that because it's Brad Pitt and he's got a charm and there's a way that he gets into your head, literally. But I do not get why an average person who couldn't afford the rent has everything blow up around them, has probably had personal loss, and then will suddenly say, yeah, I want to side with the guy that did this to me. Now that you mention it, it is kind of a Tyler Durden coat, too, isn't it? That yeah. <laughs> I definitely feel like Nolan is remaking Fight Club here. I think we're supposed to see, though, through Selena that this was what we fantasized about. The haves come down to the level with the have-nots and everybody's equal, you know, the Occupy movement, get rid of the 1%. And then she's realizing, well, shit, this kind of sucks because now everybody's beating up everybody and it's just anarchy and this isn't what I wanted after all. So she's supposed to be our character who has the biggest arc of the film of wanting anarchy and then seeing what happens when she gets what she wants. And I don't think it is the 99%. Most people, I think, were apathetic, and they're just willing to go along. We saw that with the Joker. People don't care what the plan is as long as there's a plan. They'll just go along with it. Joker makes me believe that because Joker has charisma. A guy with his mouth obstructed that talks like that and hasn't done anything but hurt people does not convince me of that. Especially a known terrorist who even Alfred knows about and who has a nuke, and yet the people are still willing to party. It's too far-fetched that people would agree, even the disenfranchised would agree, yeah, let's go to this place where we don't even have trials, we just have sentencing. I think enough of the percentage of disenfranchised people might believe that, especially when you have the kind of thugs, they're going to want to go along with it. I think the majority of the population is scared as hell hiding out under their tables in their homes that haven't been burned out yet. But let's look at that statistically. We're told that there are 12 million Gotham citizens. 12 million. There are 1,000 people in that prison. I don't see that that ratio is equitable. But I'm saying there is enough of a percentage. I don't think you need the full 99% to have a revolution like that. I don't see the majority or even 
a good portion of the minority agreeing, hey, those thousand people, even if they were wrongly prosecuted, let's let them all out and immediately give them guns. I also don't buy that every cop except for Blake and Gordon and Modine were in the sewers and they all get trapped exactly right. There's so much convenience going on here. They said they had been rounding up cops and killing them, too, that they had found. But we are to presume that most of the police force was sent there because they believed that they were raiding Bane's lair. I feel, yes, like Arnie, that would be a dumb choice. Uh, whoever made that decision, I th- was it the mayor? Was it Foley? It was Gordon! It was Gordon. It was Gordon. Gordon the idiot. Well, then, you know, he didn't know about Bruce, so maybe, maybe he did send them all to their death. But yeah, you would put people at least on the outside waiting. You would try different things. I don't buy the believability anymore, and it has changed everything for me. That I believed the believability and the credibility of Nolan's Batman universe until we have reached this stretch, and now I don't, and I'm disengaged. It's the problem with a trilogy. You have to keep trying to top yourself. Here he goes is most extreme and it has the most garing logical gaps but it also has the best cameo ever killian murphy back the crowd the audience cheered when they showed him yes both times people it really was a moment there's not a lot of cheer moments here i feel like audience reaction was pretty muted but this always got a big response i love him i think he's great in this he was perfect i could almost imagine if Heath had lived, it would have been him up there. It seems also a bit of a Jokery role. Did it bother you guys that there was no mention at all of Joker here? I, I gotta say, I don't know how to write that. I don't know what they could have done. But it seems weird that we know that he's still alive, and yet nothing is ever said or mentioned. That he has no legacy. That he has no enduring impact on this city seems strange. It didn't bother me. I didn't expect them to go there. And I never once thought... Other than how this movie drove home, how important Heath Ledger was to making The Dark Knight so phenomenal, I didn't think about Joker at all. I was actually thinking that that I would be enjoying this movie exponentially more if it was instead of Bane, it was Joker. I feel like you could have this same movie with the same absurd plot problems that I'm running into, but if you gave me that Joker, I would at least have been charmed. And the problem is the disconnect. For no fault of Hardy, I want to make this clear, I think... Hardy gives it all, and I think he's a great actor. Through no fault of Hardy, he is just cut off from us. And he's just, like you said, a goon. When you start questioning what's Bane's plot, well, it's all Talia's plot, as we find out at the very end. Right. And meanwhile, Bruce is getting his back fixed and doing sit-ups, and I knew he'd have to lose the rope to do it. When I saw him climbing, I'm like, he has to lose the rope. But what I thought was that the rope was actually too short i thought the rope was actually preventing people from doing it like if you have that rope it will tug on you but it looks like the rope has plenty of slack it's just a mental thing no i totally took it as it was too short that's how it looked the first time he jumped is that there wasn't enough slack but what i liked about this whole having to get out of prison thing is Batman Begins was so about fear. First of all, you got to get rid of your fear and you got to create fear in the criminals. Now, Batman has excised all the fear from him. He doesn't even fear death. 
which is the thing he has to fear. He still has to have some kind of fear. He has to be afraid of dying if he wants to be faster and better and stronger. He has to have that will for self-preservation. Again, thematically, as we go through these three films, I like seeing this evolution in each film. It takes up things from the first film and the second film, and it plays on them. I'm enjoying that. I found the whole stuff in the pit tedious. There's not really anything that happens in the pit I enjoyed. It was a real stretched metaphor to try us bring us back to that place where Batman found his identity and fell down the well, and it was a really contrived, boring, drawn-out moment in the film. Going in, I'm like, he's going to try and fail twice, and on his third time, he'd succeed. And I really hoped that they wouldn't take that long with it. But I just felt like it was going to be the third time. Because, you know, that's kind of the rule of jokes, right? If you're telling a joke... You tell two setups and then the third time's the punchline. And so I'm like, God, I, j- I wanted him out of it. I didn't want to spend five months in the hole. Mm-mm. And they do. And so little happens in that five months. And it just robs it of any import when you have a five-month ticking bomb versus a five-day ticking bomb even. The reason I can only think that it is what it is is because we would totally reject the idea that he had healed his back within a week. So you just don't hurt his back that bad. You just don't let him break the back. That's the fix. He's the man who breaks the bat, not literally in his back, but by breaking his spirit, making him do something else. That five months, it kills me because I'm supposed to believe that the president's like, well, we're just not going to negotiate with terrorists, but Gotham... Good luck for five months. The police patrol that bridge for five months and never let anyone escape. They bring food in. They send in some CIA ops. But because Talia is on the inside, anyone who does it, Wayne Enterprises knows about. And so she turns them all in. It's just too much. And of course, with one day left, one day is finally when both Gordon and Lucius are captured and Batman finally rises and returns. And he throws that rope back. I thought he would return with his own army of people from the pit. I was wondering why he threw that rope down. It never pays off. It seemed weird that when he did that. He's going to need those people to row the boat to get back to America. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he gets back. And again, Nolan has stopped asking those why questions. They're contrivances. Don't think about it and just go. Nobody can get to Gotham except Batman. He has no problem. He's just showing up. Yeah, it's terrible, but it is what we have to do in order to get to Act 3, the big blowout, the big climax. And this one, it reminded me of Batman Begins. You know, I loved how the Dark Knight's climax was so focused. It it had the thing going on with the boat, but really it was Batman versus Joker and then Batman versus Two-Face, and it followed Batman's plight. But here we're back to, like, when the Narrows were tearing themselves apart. You've got Gordon doing his part of the plot, which is to stop the nuclear bomb. You've got Batman going for round two with Clubber Lang. You've got Robin doing absolutely nothing of importance, but... No, he's the, he's rallying around kids. We're to understand he's the voice of the young, the disenfranchised. He's spending a lot of time at the orphanage. He's not getting them out, but he's putting them on a bus and getting them gasoline and generally keeping their spirits up. Why? Why? Because it's important to give hope. You know, there's some dialogue given about the need for hope. Bane sees hope as the ultimate poison for being trapped, and this is the character that sees hope as the only reason to live. His mission given to him by Batman is get the people out. He gets no one out. (laughs) 
<laughs> Good thing he's going to be Batman next time. <laughs> Boy, I have a lot of confidence in this. You know, I really felt that this was a reaction to some of the criticism of the Dark Knight that neither boat would have tried to blow the other one up. We get this face-off scene where police are stopping people from crossing the bridge because they were told if anyone crosses that bridge, that Bane's going to blow up the bomb. So they're taking orders from Bane. And here comes Blake saying, hey, things have changed. Orders are different. Let us across. And he tests them. And I I really feel like people felt it was a cop-out that no one pulled the trigger on the Dark Knight. So Nolan wanted someone to pull the trigger here, wanted someone to give in to the fear and blow something up. Oh, I was one of them. Yeah. I said as much in the podcast. That was an issue, but I'm not sure this is the solution. Yeah. If you're given everybody something to do, it's the result of having too many heroes. You've got to have Gordon redeem himself by stopping the nuke. You've got to have Batman be your hero. But now there's Catwoman in it who's decided, even though she could escape, she's got the bat pod, she blows her way to freedom, she gets people out, she opens a doorway. People could leave thanks to Catwoman. Robin, no. But she's there fighting with him. She's the one who kills Bane and gets the, again, this is a Michelle Pfeiffer line, that thing about guns, not so sure I'm as into it as you are. And we like her more for it. That's what's interesting, is that Batman has this code, it's all about Batman, but at the end of the day, I'm happiest when Catwoman is on screen kicking ass, because she's not encumbered by all of this moral weight. She knows what it is to have a good time, and yes, her on the Bat Pod is the best stuff in this climax. Actually, her in that latex is the best stuff in this climax, but... (laughs) Spread out doggy style on the Bat Pod. Yes. <laughs> I liked it when she could put her leg up by her head in those stilettos myself. <laughs> yes. Quick question. Are we doing presume that she is in love with Bruce? She kisses him to steal his car keys. We see some exchanges, some longing in her eyes. She fe- certainly feels guilty about what she did to him. I really wasn't getting love from her at all. In fact, I wasn't even sure what her sexual orientation was. <laughs> she says she's adaptable and she's got that roomy. I thought that maybe she was bisexual. I- Thank you for adding to my fantasy now. I never did get that she was hung up on running away with Bruce, though, until she has that one scene. I honestly thought, though, because she kisses him early on, but that's just a distraction. She's a master thief. She steals the car. When she kisses him at the end, she needed to steal something. I thought she was going to steal the bat. That's what she did earlier. Why not call back to that? Instead, that kiss is a thank you for saving all our lives kiss instead of a I'm going to steal something from you kiss. Yeah. And here is where Nolan lies again. We see, with two seconds left on the bomb, Batman is flying it out. And even though I know he's going to save Gotham, credit to Nolan for filming an exciting scene that as that bomb is scraping on the ground and he's shooting up the building and explosions are coming, I am adrenalized. This is an exciting, exciting scene. Even though I know how it's going to end, good filmmaking got me into the moment. But with two seconds left, we see Batman in the pilot seat. We see the blackness behind him. We saw him get in the pod. And yet, there happened to be an autopilot, so maybe he didn't die after all. Arnie, I think you're reading it a little bit too literally. You know, it's like a comic. There's time between the panels, time between cutscenes. They show two seconds on the clock, they show Batman in the cockpit, then they show Boom. 
No, they show Batman in the cockpit two seconds on the clock and then a boom. I paid a lot of attention to this the second time around. But Jacob, come on, let's follow this. Batman was already in medical problems before he even put the suit on again. Since then, he's had his spine dislocated. He's been fatally stabbed by Miranda. And now he is flying out to sea that he will presumably have to swim back in that will have radioactive fallout in it. The idea that he gets away way after delivering this is not only impossible to ascribe it's not the movie they were making i honestly expected going into this movie that batman would die and come on all those people in gotham batman may have extended their life a little bit but they're all dead right i mean radiation plus come on blake had to be blind right i mean he was staring right at the explosion that's instant blindness Stuart, i 100 percent agree i thought they would kill him i was watching this and they're like they're gonna do it they're going to kill him, which is the way it should happen in the Nolan universe. That yes. it's been set up since Batman Begins that the only way Batman ends is through death, through fighting crime. That is how it has to end. I really think the end was forced by the studios. I don't think that's how Nolan wanted to do it. I think he wanted Batman to be dead. I think that would have been the right decision. I think they should have gone Inception on this. I think we should have gotten everything we got. And then Alfred goes to that Florence restaurant that he says he goes to. I think he should see a man who could or could not be Bruce with Selena Kyle. Leaving it just like the spinning top in Inception. And then we could have a great discussion. By showing us Christian Bale's smiling face, it becomes a lie. It becomes what pissed me off about the prestige. I'm like, no, you lied to me. You fooled me, but you did it by lying to me. Arnie, you're reading my mind. I wanted Alfred to look up and smile and then cut. I didn't want to know what he was looking at. I totally agree. You could have that tease, but don't show us because I think killing Batman would have been the right way to go with Nolan. Yeah, I agree. I don't know why they would have done it. I don't know if it was studio interference. It's hard for me to imagine that Warner Brothers wouldn't let Nolan make the movie that he wanted to make. So on some level, I do think that Nolan wanted to leave doors open. And he maybe he has cut some future movies. Maybe it was purely a financial greed stance on it. But from a story perspective, to be ambiguous would have been the best way. To kill Batman would have been the logical way. To give us the idea that he's, because of one string of pearls, is going to be able to run off and have a half happy life with the woman that, what, no longer hates rich people? Or, I mean, has Catwoman's issues been addressed? Did the clean slate even work? I'll give you my reading of it. Yeah. I'll say that the pearls weren't his money. They were for her because she liked the pearls. He liked her. She liked him. He had the clean slate program. He's Batman. He can he can weaponize anything, it said. He can do anything. He fixed the autopilot. Yeah. And that is outright said, which again, would have been great if the ending was ambiguous instead of, and they mentioned that autopilot so many damn times too. You know, we talk about Chekhov's gun a lot. There it is. But I read it as he wiped both their slates clean and they went off and are now together because they bonded by realizing that they are the same, much like, again, Burton's Batman Returns. That was my reading. They both have clean slates. They're there. He went to that cafe because Alfred told him that story so that Alfred could not be so crushed because I felt bad for Alfred. You know, he was a bit of a dick earlier in the movie, but that scene where he's crying at the graves, that tore me up. Yeah, Alfred's got a hard this whole movie here. I guess everyone does, but yeah, I, I agree. We wanted some comfort. If other characters are getting some comfort, we wanted Alfred to at least know that things would be okay. And yeah, it does provide that. I also just think in the metaphor sense, if this has been class warfare, rich and poor, they found some kind of contrived Hollywood version, but some kind of ending in which 
the poor girl and the rich guy can coexist and live happily ever after. But that's not the end. The last shot of the movie is given to Blake or Robin. What do you guys think about Joseph Gordon-Levitt taking over the mantle? I want it. I got chills when I saw him swing into that waterfall. I knew it was going, and I wanted it. I like the Blake character. This is almost as much as Batman Begins for the next trilogy as an ending for the, the previous one. I'm ready for my Robin movie. I didn't think I'd say that, but I'm ready for it. I got a lot of questions. <laughs> a lot of questions. First of all, he goes and picks up a bag. Is that like his police gear because he quit the force? Where he has to show his ID? That's what I presume, yeah. Okay, so that bag is whatever was in his police locker. Right, his civilian stuff. Right. In that bag is a tracking device and some GPS coordinates. He's not tracking that necklace, right? Because that's how Batman found Selina Kyle, was through the tracker in the necklace. I don't know exactly what GPS coordinates he's tracking. I don't know what this is. Everything is happening very fast in this montage. I can only take it to mean it was the ability to find where the Batcave was. Because he's never been taken there. No. He never knew that it existed. So I don't know what he's tracking. I would have preferred him detecting versus geo-tracking. But he swings in, and I like that. And I like this whole thing. Now, I don't think he's going to be Robin or Nightwing because it's stated in the movie, anyone can be Batman. And so I think they're setting up, he's the next Batman. Batman is a symbol. If Gotham needs Batman, here's their new Batman. He doesn't use guns. He's an orphan. But truthfully, Jacob, you said you want that Robin movie. We all know we're not getting it, right? I take this as this is a happy ending to know that Batman lives on in Gotham and now the Nolan verse has come to an end and next year with Man of Steel or last year really with Green Lantern, DC's trying to do their Justice League. So this is the end. There will be no Robin film unless it's with Batman in the next reboot. I think that if this movie goes over gangbusters and the groundswell is really about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, then I think that it could happen with different direction. I don't think Nolan will be behind the camera again, but I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt could be putting on latex. I do think that that is a possibility in the future, absolutely. He could be the one in the Justice League movie. We don't know how much they're going to tie into this, but that could be a tie that they have. I know that Nolan's not coming back to do more of these. When I say I want my Robin movie, I don't literally mean I want him as Robin. I expect him to take up the legacy of Batman. But like you said, Stuart, I would love it if they tied this into whenever they did the Justice League. My point is that I was engaged, that I was excited for this character, for this ending, that I know Nolan said he's done, but I'd be willing to go with more of it. That I'm not such a hardcore Batman fan that could only be Bruce Wayne. I can't believe they've totally changed this. Screw Bruce Wayne. Give me the Robin John Blake Batman. I'm ready for it. As the fanboy, he's overcome all those comic book biases for me. And I'm ready to go for this entire new universe of Batman. Yeah, we've had so many Bruce Wayne Batman origin stories. Let's give somebody else a shot at it. I agree. I'm totally with it. The only thing I would say in detraction is I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a great actor. I think he can pull it off. But this movie didn't really feature him in a way that gives me confidence that he's got it. It's too bad that he really doesn't accomplish anything in the climax or really the whole movie that seems Batman worthy. Of all the people that aided in the Batman lie, he was the least essential. I agree completely. And I would be for it if they decided that he was the Batman in the Justice League movie. I would really, really go for that because we don't need another reboot. <laughs> you know, we don't. Yes. And I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt as an actor. 
I think he did really well here. His voice kind of weirded me out a little bit, but we talked about 500 Days of Summer when we did the new Spider-Man movie. I liked him in that. I really liked him in Inception. He's come a long way from Third Rock from the Sun. We'll forgive him, G.I. Joe. I could go with him teaming up with... I guess Ryan Reynolds and this new Superman in Justice League, if that's the way they wanted to go. I don't know if they would, but I'd go with it. Well, before we get there, I suppose we should wrap it up. So, Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend The Dark Knight Rises? Jacob. So I finished this movie, and I'm really wondering, what kind of Batman movie did I just see? And so I start looking at all the elements. I'm fascinated by what Nolan did with just the bat insignia. It's just a chalk V, totally stripped down, totally deconstructed. And that's a theme that goes throughout. Wayne's stripped of his cartilage. You know, we don't get fancy names for the vehicles. It's not the tumbler or the bat pot. It's just the bat now. I mean, so much of this film is about stripping Batman down to the core. It begins, it was about building the ideal. In Dark Knight, it was about testing that ideal. And now with Dark Knight Rises, we're going to totally tear down and deconstruct that ideal to see if it's anything more than a flashy costume. There's something about that ambition with Nolan. I don't think this is the strongest script. There's a lot of issues that you guys found. For me, I think the holes here, some of the contrivances, they were no greater sins than we see in most superhero action films. They're about par for the course. And for Nolan, par for the course, it, it can be disappointing. I totally get that. So what did I see? If Batman Begins was almost like this martial arts film with the guy learning different fighting techniques to avenge the death of his parents and the Dark Knight was this crime film, you know, like Scarface. Now I'm getting this Tom Clancy terrorist plot with the 80s. You called it out, Arnie. You said Rocky. I really felt like this 80s Stallone or Schwarzenegger action film mixed with a horror film. This is an ugly, dark film. People thought Begins or Dark Knight was gritty. This, for what, two hours is just, we're going to tear everyone down and then try to build it back up to see what's there. And I think Nolan pulls that off. At the end of the day, it's not about revolution. It's not about being a billionaire with all these fancy toys. It's about being an honest cop. It's about giving to charity. It's about running a business with integrity. And that's what the ideal of Batman is. And so I'm marveled by the ambition that Nolan had for this. It's not the Avengers. Could you imagine Avengers where the aliens were pulling people out of their homes and killing them and raping them and destroying their property? This is a very different superhero film. And I'm not saying it's better or worse than Avengers. It's a different take. It's a darker take. It's not what we expect with this material. I think people need to see that going in. I'm surprised. I'm actually surprised it's gotten as much fanfare as as because it's not a Batman film. It's the bare bones of a Batman film to me. It's more about that ideal and about how we can all be Batman. And so at the end of the day, this isn't what I expected. I don't know if it's what I wanted, but I went with it. I liked it. I think Nolan's a brave director for putting out a property that's tied to so many toys and video games. I wouldn't expect this kind of film. And I was engaged. I was at the edge of my seat, especially during the third act. I talked about Begins, how I was kind of checked out. Here's that third act big action scene that you would, would expect from a superhero film with missiles and flying planes and tanks and all that. I mean, it's exciting, but I think Nolan has integrity for the most part there's a few gaps i didn't think batman should have lived but i think he followed this movie to its conclusion with the universe he built i give the dark knight rises a strong recommend hmm. Stuart. 
trilogies are tough. And I went into this not expecting him to reach the heights of the last movie. I did think that it would be all of one piece. My surprise is that I felt like Nolan was off his game here. This is a rare case where his big ideas overshadowed the people that are participating in them. And it's a problem. Typically, I think of him as a conceptual director and I'm into his conceptions because he makes them seem so real. Here, I don't buy into it and I'm not connecting with the characters. Arnie, the review that you gave about Batman Begins is kind of how I feel about this movie. It feels remote. It feels distant. The first time I saw it, I really wasn't connecting with it at all. Seeing it twice definitely helps me see the small connective tissue that makes this thing work. But at the core of this movie, Bane is a pain. It doesn't work because of Bane. This movie suffers because there is a very weak villain at the beginning of this. And my love for the horror movies has made me go with the superhero conception up to this point, but I'm not exhilarated this time. I'm not scared. I'm not into it. So, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really care for this movie. Dark Knight doesn't rise. He flatlines for me. I'm not feeling this movie. The question you ask of me is, do I recommend it? And when I consider what that means, I'm going to say yes. I wanted an ending. It would not satisfy me to have stopped with The Dark Knight. I wanted to see where this goes. I feel like Nolan voices very clearly where he wanted to take the project. I disagreed with it, but I am grateful for the opportunity to have seen it. I think this is Nolan's worst movie, and I don't know that I'll watch it again, but I would recommend that everyone that has appreciated his Batman universe take a look. I disagree that this is Nolan's worst film, but I guess someday we may discuss that more. Yes, you've cited The Prestige many times. Which is a movie I love, but all right. (laughs) I agree with most everything both of you have said, but in watching this movie, all I kept going back to, as the movie itself did, was Batman Begins. This one is a sequel to Batman Begins. Batman Begins left so many plot threads that this movie picks up. There are so many references to Batman Begins and the League of Shadows and Ra's al Ghul and his plot. And yes, Harvey Dent gets a few mentions, but the Dark Knight is conspicuously absent. And Batman is conspicuously absent in this movie. One of the things I felt about especially the this movie and the last is how little we really get of Batman. Even in The Dark Knight, a lot of Bruce Wayne's heroics were done as Bruce Wayne. He had went to try to save the mayor's life as Bruce Wayne. He did the Lamborghini chase as Bruce Wayne. Here, much of the movie, he's Bruce Wayne. Everybody knows he's Bruce Wayne, <laughs> except for Gordon. And he's spending it in a prison. Because of all this with Batman Begins, for a good first half of this movie on the first watching, I had the same feeling I had for Batman Begins, which was apathy. And around the midway point, and it's a long movie, and unlike The Dark Knight, I felt this length. And around midway through my first time, I'm like, God, do I recommend or not recommend when I'm just so apathetic, just like Batman Begins? Well, we know what the answer to that question really is. But the ending of this movie... The climax, while it has huge gaping logic holes that I would have thought Nolan was better than, to be perfectly honest. I couldn't help but realize, both times I watched this, I became emotionally invested. The real reason I didn't recommend Batman Begins is because there was no character I was emotionally invested in. Here there are characters doing things that I don't necessarily agree with or like on a logical basis, but both 
times I watched this movie, I felt so torn up for Alfred when he's at that gravesite. I felt so excited when Batman's flying away the nuke. And both times I welled up when Robin discovers the Batcave. Even though that character didn't really do a whole lot, I liked that character. I liked Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this. I liked Anne Hathaway in this. The first movie kept me at bay. I couldn't find a character to relate to or connect with. Here, I said Bale is at his most relaxed. I'm connecting to Bale and his am I over the hill, should I die kind of reverie. I'm connecting to Blake, Selina. It's a bleak movie, but it's one that gripped me, which Batman Begins didn't. And so that's going to make this a recommend. Huh. I wasn't sure about you. When I saw it, I was like, the whole time I was thinking, I was just like, if I'm not connecting to this, is Arnie starting a riot? Is he Bane in the movie theater and getting people to tear down the screen? I, I thought you might really come out strong. You surprised me every time, Arnie. But I'm glad to hear that we're all, in some weird way, saying that people need to go see this movie. I'll also say the first half of this movie was much better on the second viewing when the plot strands started to make sense yeah. and when you see how the players come in. On a first viewing, it is so damn confusing. And it's not as good as The Dark Knight where I say every time I pick up new things. Here, the second time I picked up new things and I think I'm done. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's as dense, as tightly packed. But the first half becomes far more enjoyable once the secrets are revealed than it does on a first viewing when there's just so many new characters being thrown at you and it's hard to figure out who the players are. I always find it so troubling that when I'm watching a movie, especially like this, and I got Anne Hathaway in tight leather, and I'm sitting there worrying about what Arnie's going to think. I've been doing now playing too long. (laughs) Arnie's going to think she looks really good. She looks really (laughs) good. And that is it. The end of Batman, our next leg of our DC retrospective series. Obviously, more coming next year. We saw the Man of Steel teaser at the beginning of this. I got some goosebumps. Looks interesting. I, yeah, I haven't returned to any of those Superman movies, Christopher Reeve style, since I saw them in theater. So I think that going back sounds like a good idea. But we have one more DC hero to do next week. Well, we all said that she was a great component of this movie and that the movie didn't feature her enough. So what if we get a whole Catwoman movie with an Oscar winning actress? That's got to be great, right? I thought this was part of a DC retrospective, though. But I I guess we'll talk about that next week. I'm not sure how much of a DC film this is. Well, we will find out. Also starting next week, Bond. We get Catwoman on Tuesday and we will be beginning James Bond retrospective Dr. No. It kicks off on Friday. We're going to do two a week for a while because there's a lot of those movies and we're not going to... As it is, we're going to blow past the release of Skyfall this fall, but we're trying to get it all in by the end of November. So next week, Catwoman and Bond. Will Catwoman be laughably bad or just bad? Which Catwoman looks best in leather? Find out next week. Same bat day, same bat website. We've received a letter from Batman this morning. Please inform the citizens of Gotham that Gotham City has earned the rest from crime. But if the forces of evil should rise again to cast a shadow on the heart of the city, call me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Well, that was very brief. 
Just like all the men in my life. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Fortune smiles, another day of wine and roses. In your case, beer and pizza. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Batman movie, culminating in a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. My business, repeat customers. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives where you can find reviews of other comic-based movies, such as Green Lantern, The Avengers, X-Men, Howard the Duck, and many more. If you gotta go, go with a smile. <laughs> you can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many others. Now that's impressive! You can set your bat phone to subscribe and get every new Now Playing Podcast. RSS subscription details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. What is it you really came here for? While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. (laughs) The link to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, you made it. I'm so thrilled. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what are we waiting for? Let's consummate a fiendish union. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't get capes and cowls, yet you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much more. Alfred, let's go shopping. Yes, Now Playing's Batman Retrospective Series is edited by Brock, Alex, Nick, and Arnie. They scream and they cry. Which is your day now? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. I hate when people talk during the movie. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. Batman and all that DC's infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. This is why Superman works alone. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Gotta go! So many people to kill, so little time. I've noticed this with myself. I just can't take a beating that I was able to eight years ago. And this guy's... Have you taken a lot of beatings lately? Uh, There was Batman (laughs) and Robin, yeah. (laughs) Matthew Modine did not even recognize him this time around. I would have expected to see him going up against Joker. Because wasn't that the guy's name in Full Metal Jacket, Joker? Oh, yeah. That's a little obscure, though, that joke. Full Metal Jacket Obscure? Oh, that disappoints me. Cut that joke. I I guarantee you 99.9% of the people won't get what you're talking about until you say Full Metal Jacket.